4,700 years ago, ancient Sumeria was ruled by a great king named Gilgamesh. He was legendary for ruling justly but firmly, for taming and befriending the wild man known as Enkidu, and for single-handedly slaying the man-eating monster Humbaba. It wasn't long after he died and his reign ended that the Sumerians became humanity's first writers, scraping into clay and stone the first body of written language in history. And 600 years after Gilgamesh's reign, when his actual life had sublimated into legend, it was decided by the scribes that the story of Gilgamesh should be written down and thus preserved and passed on. These writings tell us that when Enkidu died, Gilgamesh's heart was broken. He wept seven days and nights for him. In his grief, he began to think about his own inevitable death. Would all his great deeds, his heroic struggles, his wise leadership, was it all going to be for nothing? So he made a fateful decision. He would find out how to live forever. He spent many years traveling through harsh wilderness, fighting wild beasts and enduring the elements. At every turn, those he met warned him that he should enjoy life while he could, because death was the inescapable fate of all who dwelled on earth. The gods reserved eternal life for themselves alone. Eventually, Gilgamesh learned of an immortal man named Utnapishtim the far away, who lived on an island across the great ocean. When Gilgamesh finally found him, he explained his quest and demanded to know the secret of everlasting life. Utnapishtim, like the others, told Gilgamesh that eternal life is impossible for mortals. There is no permanence, he said. Do we build a house to stand forever? Do we seal a contract to hold for all time? Do brothers divide an inheritance to keep forever? Does the flood time of rivers endure? It is only the nymph of the dragonfly who sheds her larva and sees the sun in his glory. From the days of old, there is no permanence. When the Anunnaki, the judges, come together, and Mamatun, the mother of destinies, together they decree the life of men. Life and death they allot, but the day of death they do not disclose. But Gilgamesh pointed out that Utnapishtim, who appeared as mortal as he was, would not die, so Gilgamesh asked him how he alone had achieved immortality. To explain, Utnapishtim decided to tell Gilgamesh the secret of the Great Flood. In the early days of humankind, as their population increased, they made so much noise that the warrior god Enlil, who was also their advisor, couldn't get any sleep. Soon the other gods had the same problem. So Enlil proposed to the gods' council that they wipe humanity out with a great storm that would cause a huge flood, destroying the cities and drowning the people. The other gods agreed, but one god, Ea, decided to warn the most pious man, Utnapishtim, so that he and his family would survive the cataclysm. Following Ea's instructions, Utnapishtim built a great wooden ship. As he finished building it, an unceasing rain began to fall. When dawn would have broken, instead a giant black cloud came over the horizon, shooting out lightning, where it was ridden by the storm god Azad. Other storms began to sweep over the plains. The gods of the abyss pulled out the dams and destroyed the dikes of the netherworld, letting the endless waters flow forth. 
The seven judges of hell, the Anunnaki, raised their torches and set the land on fire. A stupor of despair went up to heaven, Utapishtim said. When the gods of the storm turned daylight to darkness, when they smashed the land like a cup. Soon enough, the destruction was so bad that even the gods had to flee to their heavenly city, where they cowered against the walls like frightened dogs, weeping and covering their mouths, regretting their decision. The storm raged for six days. On the seventh day, the storm ended. Utnapishtim came out of his boat to discover nothing but endless water in every direction. The world and everyone else in it had been drowned. Then he spotted the peak of a mountaintop in the distance, jutting above the water's surface. He managed to land there, and after a time, the gods re-emerged, recognizing the mistake they made. Enlil himself gave Udnapishtim and his wife a blessing, granting them eternal life. Ishtar, the queen of heaven, vowed never to forget what the gods had done, though it's not clear if she promised that it would never happen again. Gilgamesh never did conquer death, though he did achieve a kind of immortality, with his story being read and remembered for thousands of years. The myth of the Great Flood also endured, appearing in various creation myths and stories echoing down through the centuries to the present day. All life on Earth gets its light and most of its heat from the energy constantly radiating from our sun. The sun's energy takes only eight minutes to shoot across a massive void 150 million kilometers wide, about 93 million miles, where it keeps going, crashing through our planet's atmosphere and hitting the land and water on the surface. Most of the energy is absorbed by these oceans or land masses, but some of the energy bounces off and reflects back upwards into the atmosphere. Some of this energy bounces so hard, it leaves the atmosphere completely, which is why Earth is visible from space. But some of the reflected energy is absorbed by the particular kinds of gas molecules in the Earth's atmosphere. Gases like water vapor, ozone, nitrous oxide, methane, and carbon dioxide, among others. When these gas molecules have soaked up their limit in energy, they release that energy outward in all directions, including right back towards the Earth's surface. This trapped energy bounces between the atmosphere and the Earth's surface, and this natural process is called the greenhouse effect, even though actual greenhouses don't work this way at all. It keeps the average temperature of the Earth from ever becoming too cold to support life, while the atmosphere also reflects and releases enough energy out into space that the Earth never gets too overheated. But for this natural thermostat to work, there has to be the right amount of those greenhouse gas molecules. Too few, and the energy from the sun dissipates back into space, leaving Earth too dark for plants to grow and too cold for life to survive. Too many greenhouse gas molecules, and the energy builds up into a deadly feedback loop of more and more energy and heat with nowhere to go. For thousands of years, humans were also caught in a kind of loop. The primary source of driving the development of human civilization was mostly the brute strength of people and animals, assisted somewhat by the power of fire, wind, and flowing water. The energy available for work was always limited by factors like the number, age, 
and health of the population. Things changed with the beginning of the Industrial Era, when first steam, then coal, then petroleum allowed the human species to experience a surplus of energy to work with. Burning fossil fuels like coal and oil released a seemingly endless amount of energy that had been locked up inside the planet for millennia. But it turns out there was a price to pay. Extracting and burning those fossil fuels dumped huge amounts of those greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide, into our atmosphere. This led to the Earth's surface and atmosphere trapping more and more and more energy. In the late 19th century, while the Industrial Revolution was still young, scientists theorized that the massive amounts of air pollution created by modern factories might be contributing to a greenhouse effect on Earth. By the 1950s, ecologists, meteorologists, and other scientists could observe the effects of several decades of constantly burning large amounts of coal and oil. In 1957, some scientists working at a company named Humble Oil published a paper on the spread of carbon dioxide throughout the ocean and the atmosphere. Quote, Although appreciable amounts of carbon dioxide have undoubtedly been added from soil by tilling of land, they wrote, apparently a much greater amount has resulted from the combustion of fossil fuels, unquote. About 10 years later, in 1968, a report for the American Petroleum Institute described the continuing rise in global carbon dioxide levels and discussed possible causes for the rise, declaring that, quote, none seems to fit the presently observed situation as well as the fossil fuel emanation theory. This report to the API also included a clear warning. It was possible, they wrote, for the carbon dioxide levels to get so high that the ice caps could melt, the seas could rise, and fish populations and even plant photosynthesis could be drastically affected. In 1972, Humble Oil rebranded itself as Exxon. At that point, they were making a profit of about $2 billion every year. And they were taking the greenhouse effect problem seriously, mostly because of the potential loss that problem might pose to their massive profits. In 1977, scientist James Black, who worked with Exxon's Products Research Division, gave a presentation to Exxon's management committee about the greenhouse effect and the terrible effect that ongoing greenhouse gas emissions from human activity would have if they continued to increase. James Black followed up a year later with a briefing paper titled simply, The Greenhouse Effect. Present thinking, he wrote, holds that man has a time window of five to 10 years before the need for hard decisions regarding changes in energy strategies might become critical. These dire predictions prompted Exxon scientist Henry Shaw to study the absorption rate of carbon dioxide in the oceans in 1979. Shaw knew that the amount of CO2 in ocean water would indicate just how bad the situation had already become. His findings were disturbing enough that Exxon began meeting with other fossil fuel companies in order to pull their findings, evaluate the science, and most importantly, figure out what to do. Exxon, Mobil, Texaco, Shell, Sunoco, and several others convened a task force organized with the help of the American Petroleum Institute. It boiled down to two problems. One, climate change was already occurring. 
a fact which was acknowledged by all the companies involved in the task force. Two, when the fact of climate change became widely known among the world's population, they would be looking for someone to blame. And a heavy part of the responsibility lay with the oil companies. The task force continued its work into the early 1980s, while the predictions from the corporate scientists continued to be dire. In 1982, Exxon's Environmental Affairs Programs Manager sent the company's managers a confidential primer on climate change, strictly for internal use only, which described, quote, potentially catastrophic events, unquote, if the use of fossil fuels was not cut back. Another warning came from Roger Cohen, the director of Exxon's Theoretical and Mathematical Sciences Laboratory. In a memo summarizing Exxon's climate modeling research to that point, he wrote, quote, the consensus is that a doubling of atmospheric CO2 from its pre-industrial revolution value would result in an average global temperature rise of 3.0 plus or minus 1.5 degrees centigrade, equivalent to 5.4 plus or minus 1.7 degrees Fahrenheit. There is unanimous agreement in the scientific community that a temperature increase of this magnitude would bring about significant changes in the Earth's climate, including rainfall distribution and alterations in the biosphere." Unquote. 1982 was a turning point for the major fossil fuel companies. They knew that the greenhouse effect was increasing, which was steadily degrading the climate, and they knew that their industry, which by now was making twice the money it was a decade earlier, was the major contributor to this effect. So they had to decide. Would they continue their business model as if nothing was happening? At some point, that would become impossible. Would they simply deny the truth that the climate was collapsing? That also seemed impossible, especially since they had done so much of the research on climate change themselves. Would they shift their efforts away from fossil fuels and towards renewable clean sources of energy like solar power and wind power? That would mean losing untold profits, so it was never considered as an option. What would they do? The current level of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere will, in the next few years, result in the temperature of the entire globe rising between one-half and one full degree Celsius. You won't notice a difference of one degree Celsius when you walk outside, but you'll definitely notice as the various ecosystems of the Earth begin to change. Huge parts of the western and midwestern U.S. will dry out and become vast deserts, blowing dust and sandstorms across thousands of miles. Worldwide, the amount of fresh water available will start to dwindle away as once mighty rivers vanish into hot mud banks or even miles-long sand dunes. The permafrost in the tundra and the mountaintops has already begun to crumble and melt, leading to large-scale landslides and destabilized infrastructure. The melting permafrost will eventually dump massive amounts of methane, a greenhouse gas, into the atmosphere, intensifying the warming effect. The people and animals living in the Arctic zones have begun to move southward as their living space melts away around them. Since there's less and less snow to melt, the summer heat hangs in the air and enters the ground, eventually to return into the energy loop. And less snow means less reflection of the sun's light back into space, 
adding to the heat absorbed by the land and sea. As the glaciers retreat, the surface of the ocean gets larger. Since that surface is dark, it absorbs more of the solar energy, raising its temperatures even more, which makes it harder for the Arctic ice to reform, which in turn raises the temperature still more. And of course, all the extra water from the melted ice and snow means islands submerged, coastlines flooded, and hurricanes that are stronger and more frequent when the globe warms by a full two degrees. Summers will be marked by large numbers of deaths from heat stress and wildfires, not to mention the famines from desiccated crops with no water to irrigate them. The forests that don't burn will stop growing, and the heat-stressed trees will release yet more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. The lack of snowmelt runoff from the Himalayas will leave the entire Indian subcontinent desperate for fresh water. Masses of people will start to move across the globe in search of food and water, sparking conflicts with the military forces of wealthy nation-states determined to hoard their own resources. Those masses will also be searching for higher ground as coastal cities flood with seawater. Animal species, especially those that migrate, will also be displaced. By 2050, more than a third of all living species will be facing possible extinction. Long, long ago, the dry land on Earth was dominated by the synapsids. These are sometimes called mammal-like reptiles, and they looked like a cross between a lizard and a dog. Some of them had beaks like turtles, others had needle-sharp teeth. The synapsids ruled the land for 60 million years. Then, 252 million years ago, something started to happen. Waves of extinction events came in rapid succession. By the end of it, less than a third of the large animal species would survive. Most of the trees on Earth died, creating a massive layer of decaying biomass feasted on by fungi for thousands of years. More than 95% of all marine animal species were wiped out. In all, about 90% of all species of life on Earth died out. It only took about 100,000 years. That might sound like a long time, but on a geological time scale, it's barely a flicker, especially considering the huge scale of the extinction. So little was left that even fossils from the end of the Permian era are extremely rare. Scientists who studied the Permian extinction have a few different theories about what caused it. Some believe that so many volcanoes, especially in Siberia, erupted around the same time that it caused severe acid rain, to the point that the seas acidified. Others believe an enormous asteroid impact, possibly in Australia, hurled billions of particles into the atmosphere, which then spread around the planet, becoming poisonous clouds that blocked out the sun for months. The particles then would have rained back down onto the surface of the land and into the oceans at acid snow and acid rain. When the clouds finally dissipated, the atmosphere would be thick with carbon dioxide from fires and decaying matter, leading to a greenhouse effect lasting millions of years. By then, most of the world's plants and plankton would be dead, starving the herbivores and eventually the carnivores. Other scientists think that anoxic water, that is, water without oxygen, built up in the Earth's oceans because there were no ice caps to circulate the water between the colder poles and the hotter equator. 
causing the globe's oceans to essentially stagnate. Or that same lack of circulation could have led to a buildup of carbon dioxide in the ocean water. Organic bacteria in the deep ocean ate organic matter, which like today produces bicarbonate as they digest their food. Without ocean currents, the bicarbonate would have built up in the deep waters until something caused the carbonated water to rise toward the surface where it would have depressurized and dissolved into CO2, turning the oceans into essentially seltzer water. As the high levels of CO2 entered shallow water, millions of marine animals would have simply fallen asleep and never woken up. Still other scientists think that the Permian extinction was some combination of all these various events and factors. If there are any lessons to be learned from the Permian extinction, one would be that life on Earth, the interconnected web of living organisms on this planet, is fragile in the short term and resilient in the long term. It took 10 million years for life on land to recover, which is either a very long time or not that long at all, depending on your perspective. As you may have noticed at this point, we seem to be recreating the conditions for a smaller scale Permian extinction at the moment, melting the ice caps away and acidifying the atmosphere and the oceans. But the truth is we've already been causing our own human-made mass extinction event for many years now. It would make a kind of sense for humanity to cap off its centuries-long killing spree by self-extinguishing, bringing hundreds of years of murder to an elegant finish in a species-wide suicide. In 1983, the American oil companies were caught between two bad options. The companies could share what they already knew about anthropogenic climate decay and assist the world in trying to find a solution. But this would cost them potentially billions of dollars in profits, enrage their shareholders, and open them up to charges that they covered up the truth. They could flatly deny that climate change was happening at all, but that would be easily contradicted by data from around the world, not to mention various scientific studies. So the companies decided on a strategy of confusion and obfuscation. Instead of outright denying that climate change was real, they would muddy the waters. How bad was it really? Was it truly caused by human activity? If so, how much? Could you, the average person, really trust a scientist who worked for the government? What if the entire notion of climate change was a political program designed by environmentalists to further their own agenda? The oil companies already knew the answers to all these questions, but their goal was to delay any large-scale action that might curtail their own business activities for as long as possible. In 1983, Exxon was making $5 billion a year to give you a sense of how much money was at stake. $600 million of that $5 billion was allocated to research, and $900,000 of that was put towards climate research. But in 1983, Exxon cut that budget to $150,000. It was a sign that oil companies were shifting their resources away from scientific research and towards their disinformation campaign. Their instincts about growing public awareness were proven correct in 1988, when the United Nations formed the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. This was the kind of thing the oil companies had been preparing for. 
The fossil fuel companies British Petroleum, Chevron, Exxon, Mobil, and Shell created their own world-spanning organization, the Global Climate Coalition, in 1989. Where the IPCC was devoted to studying climate change worldwide and disseminating accurate information about the problem to governments, experts, and the general public, the GCC worked to undermine these efforts. The GCC sent out scientific-looking papers called backgrounders to American legislators and the American media, which claimed in part that, quote, the role of greenhouse gases in climate change is not well understood, unquote. Despite the fact that it had been clearly understood by the fossil fuel companies since at least the 1970s. The GCC sent out press kits, sponsored ads in major newspapers, hired lobbyists, and funded and directed their own experts, all meant to confuse the public, pay off legislators, and defeat any legally mandated restrictions in carbon emissions anywhere in the world. The IPCC released its first report in 1990, the same year that the United States accounted for 36% of all greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. The IPCC declared that worldwide carbon emissions had to be reduced by 60 to 80% in order to avoid a global disaster. One of the contributors to the report, however, a Dr. Brian Flannery, argued that there was too much, quote, scientific uncertainty, unquote, to back up such strong language. Flannery was on the IPCC representing the International Petroleum Industries Environmental Conservation Association. He also, however, was hired by Exxon in 1980 as part of their corporate strategic research division. It seemed that the 1990s would see a showdown between the forces of global carbon reduction and the fossil fuel companies, and whoever won that struggle would determine humanity's path and possibly even its ultimate fate. As the global temperature passes two degrees of warming, more and more people will go hungry. Mass starvation will eventually become inescapable, as even the crops that can survive in hotter climates begin to die out. The Amazon rainforest will begin to die, depriving air-breathing animals of much-needed oxygen at the worst time. Trees will grow again in the Arctic for the first time in three million years, as Greenland melts and all the continental glaciers in the northern hemisphere vanish. As the soil gets warmer, bacteria in that soil will break down more and more dead vegetation, releasing thousands of tons of carbon into the atmosphere where it adds to the greenhouse effect. Also adding to the effect will be the warmer ocean water, which absorbs less CO2. Around the year 2050, as the global temperature goes up by 3 degrees, the Earth's carbon cycle will finally reach a crisis point and throw itself into reverse. Instead of absorbing carbon dioxide, the Earth's soil and vegetation will release it. This will dump even more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, so much that it pushes the global temperature up by another 1.5 degrees Celsius within 50 years. So-called super-hurricanes will slam into the flooded coastlines of the world laying waste to what remains of the coastal cities. Salt water will seep first into rivers and then into the groundwater, making farming impossible. While reservoirs evaporate, 
and the global droughts worsen. Wildfires will burn constantly in the dried-out forests and grasslands of the world. Masses of people will roam the earth searching for food and water, especially as the Indian subcontinent becomes a dust bowl, triggering larger and more frequent deadly conflicts over precious fresh water and food. The remaining governments will stay in power by promising to repel the starving and parched masses at all costs. There is an ancient story of the end of the world in the Zoroastrian book of primal creation, the Bundahishin. The first age was the age of creation, the second age the age of mixture, and the third age the age of separation. At the end of the third age, there will be a cataclysmic battle between the cosmic forces of good, led by Ahura Mazda, and evil, led by Angra Mainyu. After a great struggle in the heavens, good will win. Down on earth, a great savior will resurrect the dead in the bodies they possessed before they died, so they can face a final ordeal of judgment. The embodiments of sacred fire and healing will melt all the metal in the hills and mountains of the world, and the molten metal will flow across the earth in a single giant river. All the living and the resurrected dead will be judged by wading through the molten metal river. For those who are righteous, it is said the river will feel like warm milk, while those who are evil and wicked will burn. The river will flow all the way down to the netherworld, where it will destroy Angraminyu once and for all, along with all traces of evil in the universe. In a final act of worship, Ahura Mazda and his divine helpers will prepare the sacred Halma plant to be consumed by the righteous humans who remain on earth. Once they eat of the plant, the humans become immortal, needing no food or water, impervious to harm, so light they cast no shadow, speaking a single language and belonging to a single borderless nation, all devoted to exalting the glory of Ahura Mazda forever. Whether or not they believed the end of the world would be just, the ancients all recognized that at some point the end would come for humankind. The only question was when and how. In 1992, the United Nations issued the Framework Convention on Climate Change. This was an international treaty that tried to, quote, stabilize greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system, unquote. It was not designed to set greenhouse gas emission limits for nations or create and enforce penalties for surpassing those limits. Instead, it was intended to lay the groundwork for the negotiation of possible future international treaties, called protocols, that would be more focused on the details of how to slow the climate's decay. That same year, Exxon joined the American Legislative Exchange Council, an organization that coordinates right-wing political positions across the U.S., acting as a kind of consulting firm for reactionary politics at the municipal, state, and federal levels. Part of the new corporate strategy was to take climate change out of the realm of science and into the arena of politics. Powerful lobbyists from the oil companies joined forces with groups like ALEC and corporate-funded think tanks, and soon the official Republican Party position on climate change was one of denial, delay, 
and overall inaction. The desire to slow or stop the Earth's climate from collapsing was associated with an imaginary left-wing radical environmental agenda, which was then linked in the minds of conservatives to other things they opposed, like economic equality, access to abortion, and equal rights for non-whites, homosexuals, and women. When pressed, Republican politicians and other conservatives would often claim to sincerely care about the state of the environment, but then go on to express even more concern over the hypothetical price that any changes to greenhouse gas emissions might extract from Americans' supposedly superb standard of living. Americans would never take to bikes, never build public transit, and never give up their cars, conservatives said, so we shouldn't even consider asking them to. The scientists who might have argued against this inertia were hobbled by the rhetoric of scientific inquiry, which is designed to acknowledge that any given study has its limitations, and more data would be better. When put up against the rhetoric of patriotism, the rhetoric of science had no chance. And journalists who might have reported on ongoing climate shifts as objective, undeniable facts found themselves having to cover something as straightforward as greenhouse gas emissions and their effects on the atmosphere from within the realm of politics and persuasion, not science. This inevitably led the media to portray climate change as a kind of political opinion issue with at least two sides, rather than something that was plainly happening all around them. It's no wonder that the American general public mostly tuned out from having anything to do with climate change, since they couldn't evaluate the science, received no guidance from the media, and were lied to by their own elected leaders. But while the oil companies were, on the one hand, purchasing the Republican Party of the United States wholesale, they were making their own plans and adjusting their work to take the effects of global climate change into account. In 1995, an internal memo from the Global Climate Coalition warned that, quote, the greenhouse effect and the potential impact of human emissions of greenhouse gases, such as CO2 on climate, is well established and cannot be denied, unquote. In 1996, engineers in Nova Scotia were working for a joint project of Mobile, Shell, and Exxon, making plans to look for oil and build processing facilities along the coast of the Canadian province. And in their report, they noted that, quote, an estimated rise in water level due to global warming of 0.5 meters may be assumed. At the same time, Lee Raymond, the chief executive officer of Exxon since 1993, was making speech after speech, denying that anything was wrong, or at least that anything needed to be done. In a 1996 speech in Detroit, Raymond said that, quote, the scientific evidence is inconclusive as to whether human activities are having a significant effect on the global climate." Unquote. And in a speech to the World Petroleum Congress in Beijing on October 1997, Raymond claimed that the global temperature isn't rising, and even if it were, oil and gas had nothing to do with it, and even if they did, no one could predict the future rise in temperature. Quote, Before we make choices about global climate policies, he said, we need an open debate on the science and analysis of the risks and a careful consideration of the costs and benefits." Unquote. Not that there was never any point at which that debate and analysis would ever be done, meaning global inaction would go on as long as possible. That was the strategy in a nutshell.
Exactly two months after that speech, the Kyoto Protocols, the first international treaty to use the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, was adopted, signed by 193 nations with agreed-upon reductions in greenhouse gas emissions to take effect on February 16, 2005. The U.S. signed on to the Kyoto Protocols on November 12, 1998, but as with all American treaties, it had to be ratified by the U.S. Senate in order to take effect, and the Senate had no intention of even considering the Protocols for ratification. In a sign of things to come, just before the Kyoto Protocols were issued, the Senate passed the Byrd-Hagel Resolution, which proclaimed that the Senate disapproved of any international agreement that did not require poorer countries to also reduce their emissions and, quote, would seriously harm the economy of the United States. The resolution passed the Senate unanimously, 95 votes to zero. The year 1998 was a turning point. The oil companies Exxon and Mobil decided to merge together. They would eventually be the largest oil company in the world and the overall third largest company on the globe. That same year, the American Petroleum Institute began organizing a multi-million dollar media campaign to push back against the growing chorus of scientists trying to warn the public about a looming climate disaster. Part of the plan was to, quote, identify, recruit, and train a team of five independent scientists to participate in media outreach, unquote. Later that year, a think tank funded by ExxonMobil, the George C. Marshall Institute, co-published a document called the Oregon Petition, which was supposedly signed over email by numerous respected climate scientists who believed that global climate change was a myth. But none of the 50,000 names on the petition included scientists who studied long-term climate change, though it did include such names as TV lawyer Perry Mason, ex-Spice Girl Jerry Halliwell, and three doctors from the TV show M.A.S.H. Meanwhile, even ExxonMobil's own shareholders were getting concerned, as they realized that the company might be held financially liable for its many decades of knowingly making the greenhouse gas problem worse. They asked that ExxonMobil's corporate board create an outside director's committee to review the existing information and report on exactly how much the company was contributing to global climate change and how much money they might be on the hook for. But ExxonMobil's board decided against it. And they were right to be unconcerned. Because in January 2001, George W. Bush was declared President of the United States by the U.S. Supreme Court. When the global temperature gets more than three degrees higher, the fabric of society will truly start to fray. Antarctica's ice will be steadily melting, raising the sea level about a meter every 20 years. That may not sound like much, but it will, for example, reduce the UK to a series of tiny drought-ridden islands in the North Sea. The larger coastal cities will transform into island nations. The sheer number of displaced people moving north will overwhelm attempts to provide for them, even in the richest nations, leading to massive crowded refugee camps. China's farms will fail leaving at least a billion people without a regular source of food. Summers will get longer and harsher, making some cities unbearably hot. But air conditioning will be difficult to find, 
Since the rivers powering hydroelectric dams will have fallen, and ramping up fossil fuel power plants would only add to the problem. But that problem will be getting worse anyway, as the Arctic permafrost melts away, dumping at least 500 billion tons of carbon into the atmosphere and raising the global temperature another full degree Celsius at least. This means that if the Earth warms by 3 degrees, it will inevitably warm by at least 4 degrees and probably 5. In the legends of ancient Norway, there was a female seer who recited to the god Odin a prophecy of the end of the world. It was a series of events that came to be called Ragnarok, which translates to the fate of the gods. Before the events of Ragnarok begin, she tells Odin, brothers will fight and kill each other, sisters, children will defile kinship. It is harsh in the world, whoredom rife, an axe age, a sword age, shields are riven, a wind age, a wolf age. Before the world goes headlong, no man will have mercy on another. The first sign of Ragnarok's arrival will be three winters in a row without a summer, with the sun bringing no warmth to the world. The guardian god Heimdallr will blow into his sounding horn, causing the world tree itself to shake and moan, while Odin consults with the wise head of Mim for counsel. The sea serpent Jormungandr, who lives in the oceans that encircle the world, will thrash about in the water, causing huge waves. The waves break free the great ship of the trolls, Njagulfar, made from the nails of the dead. The troll captain Hrim the Decrepit will sail from Jotunheim in the east with his legions of trolls aboard Njagulfar to confront the gods of Asgard in a final battle, borne over the water by the massive waves. Soon the fire trolls emerge from their home in Muspelheim. The Aesir prepare themselves for the coming battle, while the dwarves sing dirges by their doors of stone. Then Surtur the Black emerges, leading the fire trolls northward, carrying aloft his sword that glows brighter than the sun. Finally the battle is joined. Odin fights the giant wolf Fenrir, who swallows Odin whole, to the wails of his wife Frigg. Vidar, the son of Odin, avenges his father's death by rending Fenrir's jaws apart and stabbing his spear into the wolf's heart, killing him. The sea serpent Jormungandir attacks, opening its massive mouth into a gaping maw. The serpent is attacked by Thor, also a son of Odin, who is determined to protect the earth. Thor and Jormungandir fight a tremendous battle, which Thor wins. But afterward, Thor takes only nine steps before collapsing and dying himself. The noble god Freyr battles against Surtur, but Freyr had long ago lost his own sword in order to marry his true love, the female troll Gerdr. So despite fighting valiantly, Freyr falls to Surtur. The people of Earth, seeing this, flee their homes, but there is no escape from what's coming. The sun turns black and the stars go out, leaving everything in eternal darkness. The Earth sinks into the sea sending up a huge cloud of flames and steam that rises up to the heavens before going out. Eventually, the seer told Odin, the earth will emerge from the waters. The surviving Aesir gods will meet together on the plain of Aidavolir. They reminisce about the past and watch as the fields of earth grow back on their own. In the grass of one field, the gods find the golden game pieces that they once played with long ago, the last remnants of a world that no longer exists. With time, 
two new humans will emerge, a man and a woman, to repopulate the Earth. There are other versions of the story, but the events are all similar, and they always end the same way. The end of the old world, and the beginning of the new. George W. Bush's capture of the U.S. presidency was the final triumph of the oil companies in their decades-long struggle against any serious efforts to slow down the climate crisis. Bush's own family had deep connections to the oil industry, as did Bush's vice president, Dick Cheney. ExxonMobil paid $100,000 towards the cost of Bush's presidential inauguration, which made it clear that the Bush administration was literally funded with oil money. His second week in office, Bush created the National Energy Policy Development Group, also known as the Energy Task Force. It was chaired by Dick Cheney, who held several closed-door meetings with various executives from fossil fuel companies. In February 2001, ExxonMobil asked the administration to fire scientist Robert Watson from his position as the chair of the IPCC, which by now had become the most powerful group still insisting that the collapsing climate was linked to human activity and that something had to be done. The following month, Bush declared that the U.S. would be pulling out entirely from the Kyoto Protocols, something the American oil companies had been strongly advocating for a long time. Bush claimed that it unfairly exempted, quote, 80% of the world, including major population centers such as China and India, from compliance and would cause serious harm to the U.S. economy, unquote. In May 2001, the Energy Task Force issued its proposal for the new national energy policy, and it was clear that many of the regulations and recommendations were essentially written by the oil companies. The point of the energy policy had supposedly been to figure out how to move towards using renewable energy, but in the final report, those energy sources are only mentioned to dismiss them as not sufficient for the U.S.'s present needs. Instead, the country should invest in repairing and enlarging the existing network of pipelines, refineries, and other infrastructure that already existed for petroleum and natural gas, essentially using massive amounts of public money to directly benefit some of the wealthiest companies in the world, while contributing even more to the greenhouse gas problem. In 2002, the Global Climate Coalition announced that it was dissolving. They stated that the group, quote, has served its purpose by contributing to a new national approach to global warming. In truth, various companies had been leaving the GCC as the reality of global climate disaster came close, starting with Ford Motor Company in 2000, followed by Daimler Chrysler, Texaco, and General Motors. That same year, Philip Cooney, Bush's chief of staff of the Council on Environmental Quality, edited a series of scientific government reports on the climate in order to downplay connections between rising temperatures and greenhouse gas emissions, and making it seem like the science in the reports was uncertain. In one case, Cooney, who was formerly a lobbyist for the fossil fuel industry, couldn't find a way to sufficiently doctor a report, so he simply deleted an entire section about the climate, whereupon another fossil fuel lobbyist sent him a fax saying, quote, you were doing a great job. In 2002, an influential Republican consultant named Frank Luntz wrote a memo to George W. Bush saying that, quote, the scientific debate is closing, but not yet closed. There is still a window of opportunity to challenge the science. 
voters believe that there is no consensus about global warming within the scientific community. Should the public come to believe that the scientific issues are settled, their views about global warming will change accordingly. Therefore, you need to continue to make the lack of scientific certainty a primary issue in the debate." Unquote. Luntz counseled Bush and his administration to always use the phrase climate change instead of global warming, since it sounded much less scary to the general public and would mislead them into thinking that there was nothing to worry about. Meanwhile, sea levels had already risen to the point where island nations all over the world finally understood that they were living on borrowed time. In 2003, the Prime Minister of Tuvalu, Saufatu Sopoanga, told the UN General Assembly, quote, We live in constant fear of the adverse impacts of climate change. For a coral atoll nation, sea level rise and more severe weather events loom as a growing threat to our entire population. The threat is real and serious and is of no difference than a slow and insidious form of terrorism against us." Unquote. The oil companies continued their fight to keep public opinion slanted towards inaction and to maintain regulators' and legislators' inertia. In January 2004, ExxonMobil put out an advertisement titled Directions for Climate Research, which said that they were, quote, uncertainties that limit our current ability to know the extent to which humans are affecting climate and to predict future changes caused by both human and natural forces." Unquote. Another ad that same month, titled Weather and Climate, argued that, quote, scientific uncertainties continue to limit our ability to make objective, quantitative determinations regarding the human role in recent climate change. At this point, ExxonMobil had known this was not true for at least 30 years. In July 2005, the 100 or so residents of the South Pacific island of Tegua, part of the Torres Strait Islands, were the first people to be declared climate change refugees, when flooding caused in part by the risen sea level forced everyone on the island to evacuate permanently. Then one month later, the United States got its first direct experience with the effects of rising sea temperatures with the landfall of Hurricane Katrina. A powerful hurricane that slammed into the coast of the Gulf of Mexico, stretching from western Florida to east Texas. Over 1,800 people were killed, either in the storm or in the aftermath, and entire towns were destroyed, including whole sections of the city of New Orleans in Louisiana. Vast sections of the coastline were wiped away, leaving giant pools of polluted water behind. The entire state of Mississippi was declared a disaster area. It was one of the worst disasters in U.S. history, and in many ways, it was a sign of things to come, especially in the aftermath of the storm. Over one million people were displaced from the central Gulf Coast, the largest single dispersal in U.S. history. Most of those people have never returned. As the waters rose and the storm raged, those who could not evacuate, the old, the disabled, the incarcerated and the sick were often left behind to die, usually by drowning. The U.S. government's response to the survivors in New Orleans showed how most states will deal with their own climate refugees in the future. Everyone who might have been expected to be in charge from local officials and politicians to the Federal Emergency Management Agency 
which under George W. Bush had been focused on possible threats from terrorists, showed a mix of indifference and incompetence in the days after the storm. And the sheer scale of the disaster seemed to leave them in a state of shock. Several people in New Orleans survived the storm only to die of wounds, thirst, or exhaustion in the following days. Some people, stranded in the city, resorted to breaking into abandoned stores for water, food, and medical supplies. This triggered a strong response from the police and military forces in the area, whose leaders by now had been embarrassed by the media's coverage of their slow and lackluster response to the disaster. In a show of strength, thousands of National Guard troops poured into the area, and numerous police officers were deputized in order to re-establish control over the population. It's worth noting here that the population in question was almost all African-American and relatively poor, while the military and police forces descending on New Orleans were mostly white and middle to upper class. The media had portrayed the African-American Katrina survivors as pillaging, robbing, and looting uncontrollably, though none of that was actually true, but it played into the racial paranoia of the white suburbs surrounding the disaster zone, who now feared an invasion of these apparent savages. So they were pleased when Louisiana Governor Kathleen Blanco said, quote, They have M16s and are locked and loaded. These troops know how to shoot and kill, and I expect they will. Unquote. And indeed, the military and police did shoot several Katrina survivors over the first week of September 2005. On the Danziger Bridge, police opened fire on several unarmed people, killing two and wounding many more. Dozens more were arrested and summarily imprisoned in the city's main train station, which had been fenced off into cells and converted into a makeshift prison. Thousands of other survivors in Louisiana and Mississippi who had been left homeless by Katrina were housed in mobile trailer homes provided by FEMA, though there were not enough to go around. But these trailers were made cheaply and quickly, and as a result, their interior walls gave off formaldehyde vapors that gave the survivors respiratory illnesses especially the children. FEMA initially denied there was a problem, but when people were still living in the trailers two years later, FEMA kicked them out, claiming that, sure enough, it was no longer safe for them to stay there due to the formaldehyde in the walls. In the end, the U.S. government felt forced to resort to military force to restore its power. That might work once in a while, but as these storms become more frequent, it's going to get easier for the government to claim emergency powers in order to assert itself over larger and larger sections of the population. In any event, ExxonMobil, who decades earlier had worried about the long-term effect of climate change on their business model, were proven right to be worried. 30 oil platforms were destroyed or damaged by Katrina, and nine refineries had to be closed, leading to a severe reduction the amount of oil and natural gas extracted from the Gulf of Mexico that year. Seven million gallons of oil were spilled from 44 facilities throughout southeastern Louisiana. But ExxonMobil still argued publicly that we just couldn't be sure if humans were causing climate change, or if so, how much, or if it was a lot, what we could do about it. 2006 saw the release of a film called An Inconvenient Truth, narrated by Al Gore. It was intended to serve as an explanation of the problem of global warming for a popular audience, and the film was a huge success. 
Unfortunately, having Al Gore, former Democratic Vice President under Bill Clinton, and the antagonist of George W. Bush for the 2000 presidential election, as the popular face of climate science, played into the Republican perception that climate change was a political boogeyman wholly created by left-wing activists in the Democratic Party to scare people into voting for them. Now they strongly associated belief in global warming and environmentalism in general with a leftist political agenda, regardless of the science involved. Also in 2006, Rex Tillerson became the chief executive officer at ExxonMobil. He would later serve as the U.S. Secretary of State under President Donald Trump. Tillerson continued the climate denial policy, though clearly it might not be possible to keep up the act for too much longer. ExxonMobil cut its funding for the Competitive Enterprise Institute and climate denial think tank. In 2006 and in 2007, it announced that it would stop funding climate denial think tanks completely, though in reality, it only cut funding to some of its groups, not all. It is a sign that the oil companies were not ready to give up. In 2008, ExxonMobil, along with the American Petroleum Institute, the Charles J. Cook Charitable Foundation, and various other oil and fossil fuel companies, paid an aerospace engineer named Willie Soon collectively over a million dollars to publish papers questioning the reality of climate change. Soon was already known as a climate change denier, but he gave a respectable sheen to some of the shoddy science that was used to argue against anthropogenic climate change. And starting in January 2009, various fossil fuel and utility companies spent $500 million over the next year lobbying against any legislation having anything to do with addressing the issues around the climate crisis. ExxonMobil alone had tens of billions of dollars to spend to make sure that no action would be taken, and they would spend as much as necessary to make sure the status quo would not change. When the global temperature moves upwards past 4 degrees Celsius, the planet starts to become unrecognizable. The ice is gone from both poles, and even in the far Canadian and Siberian north, the summers are long and hot, making agriculture difficult, if not impossible. The Amazon rainforest has finished its transition into a vast desert. It's hard to imagine the massive migrations not triggering military conflicts, rendering even more of the Earth's surface uninhabitable. Seawater has begun to flow into some continents' interiors. We might see Mediterranean algae growing in the Arctic Ocean, and palm mangroves growing in the UK and Belgium. When the temperature hits 5 degrees of warming, the industrialized world will start to revert into hostile tribes, jealously guarding their scarce resources. As farming becomes impossible, humans will try to eat whatever they can catch, but hunter-gatherers take up many times the amount of land to sustain themselves, making conflict even more inevitable. Most of the human population might resemble the groups in modern-day Somalia and Sudan, where the nation-states have collapsed into constant internal warfare. There is a decent chance that a 5-degree warmer world will melt any remaining permafrost in the seabeds of the world. If that happens, the global temperature is guaranteed to continue to increase. 2008 
was the year most climate scientists recognized that even if all greenhouse gas emissions on Earth could be halted immediately and simultaneously, it was too late to stop the greenhouse effect from kicking in. The Earth's temperature will continue to rise for thousands of years to come. Some scientists thought that the answer might be to revitalize the nuclear power industry. If it could somehow be made safer, nuclear power might provide enough power to transition the world away from its dependence on fossil fuels and allow enough time to build up the renewable energy infrastructure. But those hopes were quickly dashed after the disaster at the Fukushima nuclear reactor in Japan. The negative reaction by the public, the press, and governments made it clear that no one wanted to invest in nuclear power, let alone make it a dominant source of the world's energy. By 2012, it seemed that even some of the oil companies were finally ready to admit that climate change might be real in the face of decades of evidence. In some comments to the Council on Foreign Relations in June of that year, Rex Tillerson commented that while climate change might be real, if it was, humans would adapt to it. Quote, As a species, that's why we're all still here. We have spent our entire existence adapting, okay? So, we will adapt to this. Changes to weather patterns that move crop production areas around will adapt to that. It's an engineering problem, and it has an engineering solution. Unquote. But even if some oil executives were finally ready to admit what they had known was true for years, Republican politicians in the U.S. were not. In 2012, James Inhofe, a Republican senator from Oklahoma, published a book titled The Greatest Hoax, How the Global Warming Conspiracy Threatens Your Future. Republican politicians in the 1990s and 2000s might have seen their commitment to denying climate change as a relatively harmless way to garner hundreds of thousands of dollars from lobbyists and think tanks. But the Republican Party became more extreme in every respect after the election of Barack Obama in 2008. The Republicans had come to believe their own climate denial rhetoric to the point that many on the right took it literally as an article of religious faith, that the climate was not changing and or humans had nothing to do with it. They began to see themselves not as wrong, but as, with many other issues, a persecuted but faithful minority. Oklahoma Senator James Inhofe became a de facto spokesman for this new fanaticism. That same year, several studies found that recent heat waves, extreme rainfall, floods, and droughts had indeed been made worse by the effects of global warming. And as if on cue, in October 2012, Hurricane Sandy hit the Caribbean and the east coast of the United States, doing massive amounts of damage and killing hundreds of people across eight countries. Oklahoma was also one of the states that considered the Environmental Literacy Improvement Act in January 2013, along with Colorado and Arizona. This was a bill drafted by the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, which, as we've seen, has a long history of funding from fossil fuel companies. The act would mandate that children in public schools be taught only that global warming was a theory, and that the science behind the theory had, quote, weaknesses, and that there was no clear scientific consensus on climate change. The act was already law in Tennessee, South Dakota, Texas, and Louisiana, despite the last two of those states being directly affected by the climate crisis. But despite those efforts, the general public was starting to finally notice that something was wrong. 
The previous five years had been the hottest on record. The mean global temperature in 2015 was 14.8 degrees Celsius, the warmest in thousands of years. The level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere topped 400 parts per billion, the highest in millions of years. Nevertheless, researchers found that the West Antarctic ice sheet was irreversibly collapsing, which guaranteed several meters of rising sea levels over the next few hundred years. Nevertheless, Senator James Inhofe brought a snowball to the floor of the Senate as a part of a speech giving his usual rhetoric about the so-called hoax of global warming. It was a ridiculous stunt, but it also showed the state of self-righteous delusion that climate change deniers were entering in this latter phase of the crisis. There was no debate about the science anymore. Now it was simply about political will and power. While James Inhofe was tossing a snowball onto the Senate floor, the United Nations was drafting another of its protocols, the Paris Agreement. Unlike the Kyoto Protocols, the Paris Agreement was larger in scope and ambition, reflecting the new awareness of how bad things had already become. The goal of the agreement was to keep the increase in global average temperature to below 2 degrees Celsius relative to pre-industrial temperatures, and to limit the increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius if possible. Each signatory country would determine, plan, and regularly report on its contribution to dealing with global warming, which mostly meant cutting or mitigating greenhouse gas emissions starting in 2020. The most important countries that signed on were China, India, and the US, who together accounted for about 42% of all the greenhouse gas emissions in the world. Overall, 180 states and the US signed on, representing more than 87% of emissions. But like the Kyoto Protocols, there is no enforcement mechanism, and many scientists consider the entire endeavor too little and too late to keep warming below 2 degrees anyway. One group of researchers at MIT estimated that even if all the signatories kept to their commitments, the results would be negligible, meaning the goal of the agreement was completely unrealistic to begin with. In November 2016, Donald Trump was named President of the U.S. by the Electoral College. To the extent that Trump thought about climate change at all, he considered it, like James Inhofe, a hoax, which he usually said was perpetrated by the Chinese government, though he sometimes blamed other parties as well. He staffed the Environmental Protection Agency with people who were associated with Inhofe, and they began to eliminate what few greenhouse gas emission regulations existed in the U.S. On August 4th, 2017, the Trump administration notified the UN that it intended to withdraw completely from the Paris Agreement as soon as possible. One month later, Hurricane Maria devastated the Caribbean islands and Puerto Rico, leaving widespread devastation and over 3,000 dead from both the storm and the aftermath. As with Katrina and New Orleans, the US government made it clear that future victims of the climate crisis would be considered disposable. And as with Katrina, any possible connection between Maria and global warming was dismissed by the government and the Republican Party. But then yet another massive hurricane hit the U.S., Hurricane Harvey, causing huge amounts of damage and killing about 100 people in Texas and elsewhere on the Gulf Coast. It was clear that the warming water was creating larger, more severe, and longer-lasting storms, right as the rising sea levels made flooding worse every time.
This was proven even more sharply in October 2018 by Hurricane Michael, which formed so quickly that many were unprepared for its severe impact. Michael was one of the most intense hurricanes to make landfall in the US, but it was quickly surpassed by Typhoon Yutu, which slammed into the Marianas Islands in the Pacific Ocean just a few weeks later. As humans continue to make the Earth's oceans warmer, storms like this will become common events. October 2018 also saw the release of a new report from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. The report was commissioned by the UN to get a solid sense of what exactly would happen if global average temperatures rose by 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, as well as what steps would be necessary to keep the temperature to that level. The report found that we have at most 12 years to cut global greenhouse gas emissions by 45% in order to keep the temperature from rising by more than 2 degrees. The report attracted a huge amount of attention, even in the United States, where such reports barely register in the news cycle. But something about having a literal countdown to worldwide climate disaster seems to have brought the problem into sharp relief in Americans' minds. And right when the usual voices of climate denialism were being brought to bear on the report, Hurricane Michael hit the Gulf Coast like a giant bomb. For most non-Republicans, it seemed the stakes had finally risen far enough to take notice. But as the report makes clear, the time to take preventative action was decades ago. The world has already warmed by one degree Celsius on average compared to the pre-industrial era, which has brought us extreme weather, disappearing Arctic sea ice, more than 8 inches of sea level rise since 1880, and other damaging effects. So it might not seem like a half degree or even a full degree more will make much difference. But every half degree Celsius of warming means a dramatic difference for the planet. Fisheries would decline twice as fast at 2 degrees compared to 1.5. Corn harvests would decline even faster. Insects would drastically limit their ranges, meaning less pollinated plants. Sea levels would go up by two more inches, meaning more flooding and erosion for 10 million more people, and extreme heat events become twice as common. Keep in mind that most scientists think that warming the globe by at least two degrees is pretty much unavoidable at this point. To keep warming to that level, it would take extreme cuts in greenhouse gas emissions very quickly all over the world all at once. To be successful, it would take the most massive mobilization of manpower, industry, and effort in human history across the entire world for the rest of the 21st century. That makes it sound impossible, yet all the tools we need already exist, like renewable energy sources, electrification, efficiency measures, and so on. Even the problem of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere can be solved, but at the moment only a few companies are working on the technology needed. Not to mention that we'll need to remove about 1,000 gigatons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere by 2100, according to the IPCC report. Given that we emit about 53 gigatons of greenhouse gases every year, we would need to essentially undo more than 18 years' worth of total global carbon emissions. How to do this from a political and economic standpoint 
are questions the IPCC report doesn't even try to deal with, despite those being the central issues at stake if any change is actually going to happen. Climate deniers often point to the huge amount of money it will take to take the necessary steps as a way to say that defusing the climate bomb just isn't worth the cost. This ignores the fact that as the report found, the warming climate will do $54 trillion of damage at 1.5 degrees warmer by 2100 and $69 trillion at 2 degrees. So in the long term, the cost benefits are obvious. Wealthy individuals with wealthy nations following their lead have already begun to make their own long-term strategy evident. Rather than engage with the global community and treat climate change as a problem common to all humanity, one they most likely caused, they are building massive infrastructure projects like walls and other barriers, investing in powerful military forces, and popularizing rhetoric that excludes and demonizes refugees, immigrants, and other outsiders. The plan is to make their nations into fortresses. The super-rich are investing in what one observer called detachable infrastructure, like ships, submarines, planes, and spacecraft, which they can use to escape from the environmental and social impacts of the climate crisis. By the time they realize the futility of this, it will be too late, of course, but in the meantime, the rest of us will have to come up with the political will to figure it out for ourselves. The IPCC goes into possible economic solutions like carbon taxes and the UN's Green Climate Fund, but by now it should be clear that these are half measures, designed years ago in an attempt to sustain the social and economic systems that brought us to this moment in the first place. Our current trajectory puts us on course to reach three degrees of warming by the end of the 21st century. Even if every country that signed the Paris Agreement hits its goal, bringing the projection down to 1.5 degrees of warming would require slashing global greenhouse gas emissions 45% below 2010 levels by 2030. And greenhouse gas emissions have grown not fallen since 2010, so the cut has to be even more drastic now. Clearly the world as we know it has reached the end of its natural lifespan. But that is completely different from saying that the world itself, or even the human species, has come to an end. If the Earth surpasses 5 degrees Celsius of warming above current temperatures, Earth will resemble the end of the Permian period, which I discussed earlier. We won't have the Siberian volcanoes this time, but we will have seawater, which is so warm, less oxygen can dissolve in it. As with the Permian extinction, this anoxic water will suffocate everything from plankton to sharks. Warmer water also expands, raising the sea levels even higher. And of course, the warmer water would lead to even stronger hurricanes, causing massive flash floods across any land still above sea level. Gases long trapped in the seabed will be released, creating shock waves as huge bubbles of methane hydrate shoot up through the water and hundreds of feet into the air. The shock waves from these exploding gas bubbles will trigger yet more gas eruptions. Methane is a greenhouse gas, but unlike carbon dioxide, methane is flammable and will ignite in the air at concentrations of 5% or more. Lightning would ignite the methane in the atmosphere, sending giant fireballs shooting through the atmosphere. 
a single methane fireball would have the power of a tactical military explosive. A larger fireball might have the power of 108 megatons of TNT, 100,000 times more powerful than the entire global stockpile of nuclear weapons. Anyone who survived these hellish explosions would eventually find themselves unable to breathe, as silent, invisible clouds of hydrogen sulfide released from the stagnant ocean rolled in from the coasts and slowly across the remaining continental surfaces. And perhaps that's just as well. For soon, they would be riddled with cancerous tumors as the ozone layer disappears completely and the radiation from the sun bathes the entire Earth in a deadly glow. It's hard to tell from 93 million miles away, but our sun is slowly getting bigger, brighter, and hotter. Between one and two billion years from now, the sun will get hot enough to boil away the surface of our oceans. The atmosphere will fill with water vapor, making the greenhouse gases reach the point that the surface of the Earth will come to resemble the planet Venus. Some primitive life forms will probably survive high in the clouds where the temperature is cooler, but the rest of the planet will be totally inhospitable to most life as we know it. To put this in perspective, the Earth itself is about 4.5 billion years old, with life forms being about 3.8 billion years old, so we're only a bit more than halfway to the natural end of all life on Earth. It's still going to take a while. It's going to take much longer, between 5 and 7 billion more years, for the sun to run out of the hydrogen fuel in its core. At that point, the sun's core will shrink, get even hotter, and start fusing helium molecules, releasing even more energy as it becomes a red giant and balloons up to a hundred times its current diameter. The thickened atmosphere of Earth will vanish, leaving the surface exposed to cosmic rays and the intense luminosity of the red sun. The sun will eventually shrink down dramatically into a white dwarf, still orbited by the silent Earth. It might stay in that orbit until it eventually spiraled into the remnants of the sun. It might collide with a large object traveling through space, or it might just miss getting hit, and if the object is large enough, it might be dislodged from its ancient orbit and float through the galaxy and eventually the universe, until that too comes to an end. Probably what will happen is the galaxies will move farther and farther away from each other and one by one, the stars, like our sun, will run out of fuel and burn out. The universe will grow darker and colder with each dying star until the universe is dominated by black holes. As these black holes give off Hawking radiation, they too will slowly evaporate into nothingness, leaving our universe a cold, dark, infinitely expanding void. I would say forever, but the concept of time will have no longer any meaning. I mention all this just as a reminder that nothing was ever going to last forever. Not the human species, not the Earth, not even the universe. And humans have understood that from our earliest days as intelligent animals. But that doesn't make our own lives not worth living in this moment, at this time and place. It might seem inevitable that we can't stop ourselves from destroying our own civilization and scarring our own planet. 
but it isn't inevitable. And maybe you only think it's inevitable because that's what you've been told over and over again by people who didn't want anything to change, at least not in a way that would possibly threaten their own enormous power. Maybe adapting to climate change doesn't mean building feats of geoengineering or editing our genome to resemble desert rodents. It might only mean discarding the economic, political, and social systems that allowed things to get this bad. It seems like we finally have no other choice but to work together, not as separate nations or economic units, but as a species, to make the world a better place for everyone. But of all the options to be faced with, that one doesn't seem so bad after all. <laughs>